Chapter 5 of the Story of My Boyhood and Youth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Sue Anderson. The Story of My Boyhood and Youth by John Muir. Chapter 5 Young Hunters. American Headhunters. Deer. A Resurrected Woodpecker. Muskrats. Foxes and Badgers. A Pet Coon. Bathing. Squirrels. Gophers a burglaria shrike. In the older eastern states it used to be considered great sport for an army of boys to assemble to hunt birds, squirrels, and every other unclaimed, unprotected live thing of shootable size. They divided into two squads, and, choosing leaders, scattered through the woods in different directions, and the party that killed the greatest number enjoyed a supper at the expense of the other. The whole neighborhood seemed to enjoy the shameful sport especially the farmers afraid of their crops. With a great air of importance, laws were enacted to govern the gory business. For example, a gray squirrel must count four heads, a woodchuck six heads, common red squirrel two heads, black squirrel ten heads, a partridge five heads, the larger birds such as whippoorwills and nighthawks two heads each, the wary crows three, and bobwhites three. But all the blessed company of mere songbirds warblers, robins, thrushes, orioles, with nuthatches, chickadees, blue jays, woodpeckers, etc., counted only one head each. The heads of the birds were hastily wrung off and thrust into the game bags to be counted, saving the bodies only of what were called game, the larger squirrels, bobwhites, partridges, etc. The blood-stained bags of the best slayers were soon bulging full. Then, at a given hour, all had to stop and repair to the town empty their dripping sacks, count the heads, and go rejoicing to their dinner. Although, like other wild boys, I was fond of shooting, I never had anything to do with these abominable head-hunts. And now, the farmers having learned that birds are their friends, wholesale slaughter has been abolished. We seldom saw deer, though their tracks were common. The Yankee explained that they traveled and fed mostly at night, and hid in tamarack swamps and brushy places in the daytime, and how the Indians knew all about them and could find them whenever they were hungry. Indians belonging to the Menominee and Winnebago tribes occasionally visited us at our cabin to get a piece of bread or some matches, or to sharpen their knives on our grindstone, and we boys watched them closely to see that they didn't steal Jack. We wondered at their knowledge of animals when we saw them go direct to trees on our farm, chop holes in them with their tomahawks, and take out coons, of the existence of which we had never noticed the slightest trace. In winter, after the first snow, we frequently saw three or four Indians hunting deer in company, running like hounds on the fresh, exciting tracks. The escape of the deer from these noiseless, tireless hunters was said to be well-nigh impossible, they were followed to the death. Most of our neighbors brought some sort of gun from the old country, but seldom took time to hunt, even after the first hard work of fencing and clearing was over, except to shoot a duck or prairie chicken now and then that happened to come in their way. It was only the less industrious American settlers who left their work to go far a-hunting. Two or three of our most enterprising American neighbors went off every fall with their teams to the pine regions and cranberry marshes in the northern part of the state to hunt and gather berries. I well remember seeing their wagons loaded with game when they returned from a successful hunt. 
their loads consisted usually of half a dozen deer or more, one or two black bears, and fifteen or twenty bushels of cranberries, all solidly frozen. Part of both the berries and meat was usually sold in portage. The balance furnished their families with abundance of venison, bear grease, and pies. Winter wheat is sown in the fall, and when it is a month or so old, the deer, like the wild geese, are very fond of it, especially since other kinds of food are then becoming scarce. One of our neighbors across the Fox River killed a large number, some thirty or forty, on a small patch of wheat, simply by lying in wait for them every night. Our wheat field was the first that was sown in the neighborhood. The deer soon found it and came in every night to feast, but it was eight or nine years before we ever disturbed them. David then killed one deer, the only one killed by any of our family. He went out shortly after sundown at the time of full moon to one of our wheat fields, carrying a double-barreled shotgun loaded with buckshot. After lying in wait an hour or so, he saw a doe and her fawn jump the fence and come cautiously into the wheat. After they were within sixty or seventy yards of him, he was surprised when he tried to take aim that about half of the moon's disk was mysteriously darkened, as if covered by the edge of a dense cloud. This proved to be an eclipse. Nevertheless, he fired at the mother, and she immediately ran off, jumped the fence, and took to the woods by the way she came. The fawn danced about, bewildered, wondering what had become of its mother, but finally fled to the woods. David fired at the poor deserted thing as it ran past him, but happily missed it. Hearing the shots, I joined David to learn his luck. He said he thought he must have wounded the mother, and when we were strolling about in the woods in search of her, we saw three or four deer on their way to the wheat field, led by a fine buck. They were walking rapidly, but cautiously halted at intervals of a few rods to listen and look ahead and scent the air. They failed to notice us, though by this time the moon was out of the eclipse shadow and we were standing only about fifty yards from them. I was carrying the gun. David had fired both barrels, but when he was reloading one of them he happened to put the wad intended to cover the shot into the empty barrel, and so when we were climbing over the fence the buckshot had rolled out, and when I fired at the big buck I knew by the report that there was nothing but powder in the charge. The startled deer danced about in confusion for a few seconds, uncertain which way to run until they caught sight of us, when they bounded off through the woods. Next morning we found the poor mother lying about three hundred yards from the place where she was shot. She had run this distance and jumped a high fence after one of the buckshot had passed through her heart. Excepting Sundays, we boys had only two days of the year to ourselves the 4th of July and the 1st of January. Sundays were less than half our own, on account of Bible lessons, Sunday school lessons, and church services. All the others were labor days, rain or shine, cold or warm. No wonder, then, that our two holidays were precious, and that it was not easy to decide what to do with them. They were usually spent on the highest rocky hill in the neighborhood, called the Observatory, in visiting our boyfriends on adjacent farms to hunt fish, wrestle, and play games, in reading some new favorite book we had managed to borrow or buy, or in making models of machines I had invented. 
One of our July days was spent with two Scotch boys of our own age, hunting red-winged blackbirds then busy in the cornfields. Our party had only one single-barreled shotgun, which, as the oldest, and perhaps because I was thought to be the best shot, I had the honor of carrying. We marched through the corn without getting sight of a single red-wing, but just as we reached the far side of the field a red-headed woodpecker flew up, and the Lawson boys cried, "'Shoot him! Shoot him! He is just as bad as the blackbird! He eats corn!' This memorable woodpecker alighted in the top of a white oak tree about fifty feet high. I fired from a position almost immediately beneath him, and he fell straight down at my feet. When I picked him up and was admiring his plumage, he moved his legs slightly, and I said, "'Poor bird, he's no dead yet, and we'll have to kill him to put him out of pain,' sincerely pitying him, after we had taken pleasure in shooting him. I had seen servant girls wringing chicken necks, so with desperate humanity I took the limp unfortunate by the head, swung him around three or four times, thinking I was wringing his neck, and then threw him hard on the ground to quench the last possible spark of life and make quick death doubly sure. But, to our astonishment, the moment he struck the ground he gave a cry of alarm and flew right straight up like a rejoicing lark into the top of the same tree and perhaps to the same branch he had fallen from, and began to adjust his ruffled feathers, nodding and chirping and looking down at us as if wondering what in the bird world we had been doing to him. This, of course, banished all thought of killing, as far as that revived woodpecker was concerned. No matter how many ears of corn he might spoil, and we all heartily congratulated him on his wonderful, triumphant resurrection from three kinds of death, shooting, neck-wringing, and destructive concussion. I suppose only one pellet had touched him, glancing on his head. Another extraordinary shooting affair happened one summer morning shortly after daybreak. When I went to the stable to feed the horses, I noticed a big white-breasted hawk on a tall oak in front of the chicken house, evidently waiting for a chicken breakfast. I ran to the house for the gun, and when I fired he fell about halfway down the tree, caught a branch with his claws, hung back downward and fluttered a few seconds, then managed to stand erect. I fired again to put him out of pain, and to my surprise the second shot seemed to restore his strength instead of killing him, for he flew out of the tree and over the meadow with strong and regular wing-beats for thirty or forty rods, apparently as well as ever, but died suddenly in the air and dropped like a stone. We hunted muskrats whenever we had time to run down to the lake. They are brown, bunchy animals about twenty-three inches long, the tail being about nine inches in length, black in color and flattened vertically for sculling and the hind feet are half-webbed. They look like little beavers, usually have from ten to a dozen young, are easily tamed, and make interesting pets. We like to watch them at their work and at their meals. In the spring, when the snow vanishes and the lake ice begins to melt, the first open spot is always used as a feeding place, where they dive from the edge of the ice, and in a minute or less reappear with a mussel or a mouthful of pontederia or water-lily leaves climb back onto the ice and sit up to nibble their food, handling it very much like squirrels or marmots. It is then that they are most easily shot, a solitary hunter oftentimes shooting thirty or forty in a single day. Their nests on the rushy margins of lakes and streams, 
far from being hidden like those of most birds, are conspicuously large and conical in shape like Indian wigwams. They are built of plants, rushes, sedges, mosses, etc., and ornamented around the base with mussel shells. It was always pleasant and interesting to see them in the fall as soon as the nights began to be frosty, hard at work cutting sedges on the edge of the meadow or swimming out through the rushes, making long, glittering ripples as they sculled themselves along, diving where the water is perhaps six or eight feet deep and reappearing in a minute or so with large mouthfuls of the weedy, tangled plants gathered from the bottom, returning to their big wigwams, climbing up and depositing their loads where most needed to make them yet larger and firmer and warmer, foreseeing the freezing weather just like ourselves when we banked up our house to keep out the frost. They lie snug and invisible all winter, but do not hibernate. Through a channel carefully kept open they swim out under the ice for mussels and the roots and stems of water lilies, etc., on which they feed just as they do in summer. Sometimes the oldest and most enterprising of them venture to orchards near the water in search of fallen apples. Very seldom, however, do they interfere with anything belonging to their mortal enemy, man. Notwithstanding they are so well hidden and protected during the winter, many of them are killed by Indian hunters, who creep up softly and spear them through the thick walls of their cabins. Indians are fond of their flesh, and so are some of the wildest of the white trappers. They are easily caught in steel traps, and after vainly trying to drag their feet from the cruel, crushing jaws, they sometimes in their agony gnaw them off. Even after having gnawed off a leg, they are so guileless that they never seem to learn to know and fear traps, for some of them are occasionally found that have been caught twice and have gnawed off a second foot. Many other animals suffering excruciating pain in these cruel traps gnaw off their legs. Crabs and lobsters are so fortunate as to be able to shed their limbs when caught or merely frightened, apparently without suffering any pain, simply by giving themselves a little shivery shake. The muskrat is one of the most notable and widely distributed of American animals, and millions of the gentle, industrious, beaver-like creatures are shot and trapped and speared every season for their skins worth a dime or so, like shooting boys and girls for their garments. Surely a better time must be drawing nigh when godlike human beings will become truly humane and learn to put their animal fellow mortals in their hearts instead of on their backs or in their dinners. In the meantime, we may just as well as not learn to live clean, innocent lives instead of slimy, bloody ones. All hale, red-blooded boys are savage, the best and boldest, the savagest, fond of hunting and fishing. But when thoughtless childhood is past, the best rise the highest above all this bloody flesh and sport business, the wild foundational animal dying out day by day as divine, uplifting, transfiguring charity grows in. Hares and rabbits were seldom seen when we first settled in the Wisconsin woods, but they multiplied rapidly after the animals that preyed upon them had been thinned out or exterminated, and food and shelter supplied in grain fields and log fences, and the thickets of young oaks that grew up in pastures after the annual grass fires were kept out. Catching hares in the winter time when they were hidden in hollow fence logs was a favorite pastime with many of the boys whose fathers allowed them time to enjoy the sport. 
Occasionally a stout lithe hare was carried out into an open snow-covered field, set free, and given a chance for its life in a race with a dog. When the snow was not too soft and deep, it usually made good its escape, for our dogs were only fat, short-legged mongrels. We sometimes discovered hares in standing hollow trees, crouching on decayed punky wood at the bottom, as far back as possible from the opening, but when alarmed they managed to climb to a considerable height, if the hollow was not too wide, by bracing themselves against the sides. Foxes, though not uncommon, we boys, held steadily to work, seldom saw, and, as they found plenty of prairie chickens for themselves and families, they did not often come near the farmer's hen-roosts. Nevertheless, the discovery of their dens was considered important. No matter how deep the den might be, it was thoroughly explored with pick and shovel by sport-loving settlers at a time when they judged the fox was likely to be at home, but I cannot remember any case in our neighborhood where the fox was actually captured. In one of the dens a mile or two from our farm, a lot of prairie chickens were found and some smaller birds. Badger dens were far more common than fox dens. One of our fields was named Badger Hill, from the number of badger holes in a hill at the end of it, but I cannot remember seeing a single one of the inhabitants. On a stormy day in the middle of an unusually severe winter, a black bear, hungry no doubt, and seeking something to eat, came strolling down through our neighborhood from the northern pine woods. None had been seen here before, and it caused no little excitement and alarm, for the European settlers imagined that these poor, timid, bashful bears were as dangerous as man-eating lions and tigers, and that they would pursue any human being that came in their way. This species is common in the north part of the state, and few of our enterprising Yankee hunters who went to the pineries in the fall failed to shoot at least one of them. We saw very little of the owlish, serious-looking coons, and no wonder, since they lie hidden nearly all day in hollow trees and we never had time to hunt them. We often heard their curious, quavering, whinnying cries on still evenings, but only once succeeded in tracing an unfortunate family through our cornfield to their den in a big oak and catching them all. One of our neighbors, Mr. McRath, a Highland Scotchman, caught one and made a pet of it. It became very tame and had perfect confidence in the good intentions of its kind friend and master. He always addressed it in speaking to it as a little man. When it came running to him and jumped on his lap or climbed up his trousers, he would say, while patting its head as if it were a dog or a child, Cooney, my manny, Cooney, my manny, how are ye the day? I think you're hungry, as the comical pet began to examine his pockets for nuts and bits of bread. Na, na, there's nothing in my pooch for ye the day, my ween manny, but I'll get ye something. He would then fetch something it liked, bread, nuts, a carrot, or perhaps a piece of fresh meat. Anything scattered for it on the floor, it felt with its paw instead of looking at it, judging of its worth more by touch than sight. The outlet of our fountain lake flowed past Mr. McGrath's door, and the coon was very fond of swimming in it and searching for frogs and mussels. It seemed perfectly satisfied to stay about the house without being confined, occupied a comfortable bed in a section of a hollow tree, and never wandered far. How long it lived after the death of its kind master, I don't know. I suppose that almost any wild animal may be made a pet, 
simply by sympathizing with it and entering as much as possible into its life. In Alaska I saw one of the common gray mountain marmots kept as a pet in an Indian family. When its master entered the house it always seemed glad, almost like a dog, and when cold or tired it snuggled up in a fold of its blanket with the utmost confidence. We have all heard of ferocious animals, lions and tigers, etc., that were fed and spoken to only by their masters, becoming perfectly tame, and, as is well known, the faithful dog that follows man and serves him, and looks up to him and loves him as if he were a god, is a descendant of the bloodthirsty wolf or jackal. Even frogs and toads and fishes may be tamed, provided they have the uniform sympathy of one person, with whom they become intimately acquainted, without the distracting and varying attentions of strangers. And surely all God's people, however serious and savage, great or small, like to play. Whales and elephants, dancing, humming gnats, and invisibly small, mischievous microbes, all are warm with divine radium and must have lots of fun in them. As far as I know, all wild creatures keep themselves clean. Birds, it seems to me, take more pains to bathe and dress themselves than any other animals. Even ducks, though living so much in water, dip and scatter cleansing showers over their backs and shake and preen their feathers as carefully as land birds. Watching small singers taking their morning baths is very interesting, particularly when the weather is cold. Alighting in a shallow pool, they oftentimes show a sort of dread of dipping into it, like children hesitating about taking a plunge, as if they felt the same kind of shock, and this makes it easy for us to sympathize with the little feathered people. Occasionally I have seen from my study window red-headed linnets bathing in dew when water elsewhere was scarce. A large Monterey cypress with broad branches and innumerable leaves on which the dew lodges in still nights made favorite bathing places. Alighting gently, as if afraid to waste the dew, they would pause and fidget as they do before beginning to plash in pools, then dip and scatter the drops in showers and get as thorough a bath as they would in a pool. I have also seen the same kind of baths taken by birds on the boughs of silver firs on the edge of a glacier meadow. But nowhere have I seen the dewdrops so abundant as on the Monterey Cypress, and the picture made by the quivering wings and iris dew was memorably beautiful. Children, too, make fine pictures splashing and crowing in their little tubs, how widely different from wallowing pigs bathing with great show of comfort and rubbing themselves dry against rough bark trees. Some of our own species seem fairly to dread the touch of water. When the necessity of absolute cleanliness by means of frequent baths was being preached by a friend who had been reading Combe's Physiology, in which he had learned something of the wonders of the skin with its millions of pores that had to be kept open for health, one of our neighbors remarked, Oh, that's unnatural. It's well enough to wash in a tub maybe once or twice a year, but not to be paddling in the water all the time like a frog in a spring hole. Another neighbor who prided himself on his knowledge of big words said with great solemnity, I never can believe that man is amphibious. Natives of tropic islands pass a large part of their lives in water and seem as much at home in the sea as on the land. 
swim and dive, pursue fishes, play in the waves like surf ducks and seals, and explore the coral gardens and groves and seaweed meadows as if truly amphibious. Even the natives of the far north bathe at times. I once saw a lot of Eskimo boys ducking and plashing right merrily in the Arctic Ocean. It seemed very wonderful to us that the wild animals could keep themselves warm and strong in winter when the temperature was far below zero. Feeble-looking rabbits scud away over the snow, lithe and elastic, as if glorying in the frosty, sparkling weather, and sure of their dinners. I have seen gray squirrels dragging ears of corn about as heavy as themselves out of our field through loose snow and up a tree, balancing them on limbs and eating in comfort with their dry, electric tails spread airily over their backs. Once I saw a fine, hardy fellow go into a knot-hole. Thrusting in my hand, I caught him and pulled him out. As soon as he guessed what I was up to, he took the end of my thumb in his mouth and sunk his teeth right through it, but I gripped him hard by the neck, carried him home, and shut him up in a box that contained about half a bushel of hazel and hickory nuts, hoping that he would not be too much frightened and discouraged to eat while thus imprisoned after the rough handling he had suffered. I soon learned, however, that sympathy in this direction was wasted, for no sooner did I pop him in than he fell to with right hearty appetite, gnawing and munching the nuts as if he had gathered them himself, and was very hungry that day. Therefore, after allowing time enough for a good square meal, I made haste to get him out of the nut-box and shut him up in a spare bedroom, in which father had hung a lot of selected ears of Indian corn for seed. They were hung up by the husks on cords stretched across from side to side of the room. The squirrel managed to jump from the top of one of the bedposts to the cord, cut off an ear, and let it drop to the floor. He then jumped down, got a good grip of the heavy ear, carried it to the top of one of the slippery, polished bedposts, seated himself comfortably, and, holding it well balanced, deliberately pried out one kernel at a time with his long, chiseled teeth, ate the soft, sweet germ, and dropped the hard part of the kernel. In this masterly way, working at high speed, he demolished several ears a day, and with a good warm bed in a box made himself at home and grew fat. Then naturally, I suppose, free romping in the snow and treetops with companions came to mind. Anyhow, he began to look for a way of escape. Of course, he first tried the window, but found that his teeth made no impression on the glass. Next, he tried the sash and gnawed the wood off level with the glass. Then father happened to come upstairs and discovered the mischief that was being done to his seed corn and window and immediately ordered him out of the house. The flying squirrel was one of the most interesting of the little animals we found in the woods, a beautiful brown creature with fine eyes and smooth soft fur like that of a mole or field mouse. He is about half as long as the gray squirrel, but his widespread tail and the folds of skin along his sides that form the wings make him look broad and flat, something like a kite. In the evenings our cat often brought them to her kittens at the shanty, and later we saw them fly during the day from the trees we were chopping. They jumped and glided off smoothly and apparently without effort, like birds, as soon as they heard and felt the breaking shock of the strained fibers at the stump when the trees they were in began to totter and groan. They can fly, or rather glide, twenty or thirty yards from the top of a tree, twenty or thirty feet to the foot of another, 
gliding upward as they reach the trunk, or if the distance is too great, they alight comfortably on the ground and make haste to the nearest tree and climb just like the wingless squirrels. Every boy and girl loves the little fairy, airy-striped chipmunk, half-squirrel, half-spermophile. He is about the size of a field mouse, and often made us think of linnets and song sparrows as he frisked about gathering nuts and berries. He likes almost all kinds of grain, berries, and nuts, hazelnuts, hickory nuts, strawberries, huckleberries, wheat, oats, corn. He is fond of them all and thrives on them. Most of the hazel bushes on our farm grew along the fences, as if they had been planted for the chipmunks alone, for the rail fences were their favorite highways. We never wearied watching them, especially when the hazelnuts were ripe, and the little fellows were sitting on the rails nibbling and handling them like tree squirrels. We used to notice, too, that, although they are very neat animals, their lips and fingers were dyed red like our own when the strawberries and huckleberries were ripe. We could always tell when the wheat and oats were in the milk by seeing the chipmunks feeding on the ears. They kept nibbling at the wheat until it was harvested and then gleaned in the stubble, keeping up a careful watch for their enemies, dogs, hawks, and shrikes. They are as widely distributed over the continent as the squirrels, various species inhabiting different regions on the mountains and lowlands, but all the different kinds have the same general characteristics of light, airy cheerfulness and good nature. Before the arrival of farmers in the Wisconsin woods, the small ground squirrels, called gophers, lived chiefly on the seeds of wild grasses and weeds, but after the country was cleared and plowed, no feasting animal fell too more heartily on the farmer's wheat and corn. Increasing rapidly in numbers and knowledge, they became very destructive, especially in the spring when the corn was planted, for they learned to trace the rows and dig up and eat the three or four seeds in each hill about as fast as the poor farmers could cover them. And unless great pains were taken to diminish the numbers of the cunning little robbers, the fields had to be planted two or three times over, and even then large gaps in the rows would be found. The loss of the grain they consumed after it was ripe, together with the winter stores laid up in their burrows, amounted to little as compared with the loss of the seed on which the whole crop depended. One evening, about sundown, when my father sent me out with a shotgun to hunt them in a stubble field, I learned something curious and interesting in connection with these mischievous gophers, though just then they were doing no harm. As I strolled through the stubble, watching for a chance for a shot, a shrike flew past me and alighted on an open spot at the mouth of a burrow about thirty yards ahead of me. Curious to see what he was up to, I stood still to watch him. He looked down the gopher hole in a listening attitude, then looked back at me to see if I was coming, looked down again and listened and looked back at me. I stood perfectly still, and he kept twitching his tail, seeming uneasy and doubtful about venturing to do the savage job that I soon learned he had in mind. Finally, encouraged by my keeping so still, to my astonishment, he suddenly vanished in the gopher hole a bird going down a deep, narrow hole in the ground like a ferret or a weasel seemed very strange, and I thought it would be a fine thing to run forward, clap my hand over the hole, and have the fun of imprisoning him and seeing what he would do when he tried to get out. So I ran forward, but stopped when I got within a dozen or fifteen yards of the hole, thinking it might perhaps be more interesting to wait and see what would naturally happen without my interference. 
While I stood there, looking and listening, I heard a great disturbance going on in the burrow, a mixed lot of keen squeaking, shrieking, distressful cries, telling that down in the dark something terrible was being done. Then suddenly out popped a half-grown gopher, four and a half or five inches long, and without stopping a single moment to choose a way of escape, ran screaming through the stubble straight away from its home, quickly followed by another and another until some half-dozen were driven out, all of them crying and running in different directions as if at this dreadful time home, sweet home, was the most dangerous and least desirable of any place in the wide world. Then out came the shrike, flew above the runaway gopher children, and diving on them killed them, one after another, with blows at the back of the skull. He then seized one of them, dragged it to the top of a small clod so as to be able to get a start, and laboriously made out to fly with it about ten or fifteen yards when he alighted to rest. Then he dragged it to the top of another clod and flew with it about the same distance, repeating this hard work over and over again until he managed to get one of the gophers on to the top of a log fence. How much he ate of his hard-won prey, or what he did with the others, I can't tell, for by this time the sun was down, and I had to hurry home to my chores. End of chapter 5